0: It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live.
1: Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because
0: you are On Giants.com. You
2: know what I saw?
0: New York
2: Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a
3: bunch of crazy dogs and have some fun. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. You could also tune in through various podcast platforms. He is Sean O'Hara. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we will break down everything related to the New York Giants. Week one has finally arrived. We will look ahead to the first matchup against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And multiple ways for you to interact with us here on the program, 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number, 201-939-4513. You could also tweet at us using hashtag GiantsChat, directly interact with us. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Sean O'Hara60. Sean, looking forward to the next 60 minutes. Hope all is well on your end. How's everything today?
2: Lance, good afternoon, my man. Uh, Everything is fantastic. What an unbelievable year 2020 has been. Summer is behind us. We have football in front of us. This is exciting times. Um, You know, I I can't help but reflect back on, as a player, Lance, week one. You know, look, everybody's undefeated right now. And and the energy, the excitement, you you never know, you know, how the season's going to unfold. But, man, week one kickoff, that first national anthem, the first – um you know th- that first moment coming out of the stadium it's going to feel different obviously this year with no fans but the rush that you get wearing that NY on your helmet um or or whatever team you're playing for that is special and and you only get one chance at that at week that week one excitement and uh you know i just flash back to uh tom Coffin always loved his signs as you guys have heard stories before he used to have a sign in our team meeting room that said Week one excitement for 16 weeks or 17 weeks, 16 games. And uh, that's that. That's what I remember most about week one and what's most exciting about it.
3: Absolutely. We're all looking forward to things because it's a clean slate, to your point, for everybody. The environment, though, as you alluded to, is going to be a little bit different in terms of the buildup to the excitement because there's obviously not going to be any fans at the week one game between the Giants and the Steelers, but there will be football and that's certainly a positive development. It's been quite the journey to get here but where everything looks like it's in tip-top shape and ready to go for week one between the Giants and the Steelers and let's start with some news that was revealed this morning, Sean and that has to do with the Giants roster. Not necessarily a surprising development but the Giants have officially parted ways with one of their three first-round picks in 2019 as cornerback DeAndre Baker was waived. This stemming from of course his off-the-field issues and this is now an opportunity Sean for the Giants to move forward they have a number of new faces in the secondary and a number of players that hopefully they'll be able to mix and match within Patrick Graham's game
2: yeah certainly unfortunate for the Giants you know they they traded back into the first round to get DeAndre Baker and I remember him coming out of college and he was a he was one of the more physical corners um, I think he had only given up one touchdown in his entire career and I actually had a chance to talk to him on Good Morning Football one morning and he he's kind of a quiet kind of reserved kid so um, certainly a shock to hear you know the news that transpired with him and 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 what happened um, over this offseason but for the Giants they were they drafted him in the first round to be that opposite corner and for the for them to lose him and and you know to obviously lose all of that capital now that they used to go up and get him in the first round it's a big blow Um, you you couple that with the Sam Beal opt-out and you know there's, there's a lot of lost talent there but it's also created some opportunity for some other kids to step up.
3: Well, and as you hit on, John, and you know this very well from being around the NFL for so many years, the way you build the nucleus of your team up is through the draft. So you want to especially be able to come through and deliver on those first-round picks, I think— Disappointment is certainly one of the terms that comes to mind, but you also utilize the word opportunity, and that now comes with DeAndre Baker not being in the picture, as well as Sam Beal. So you think about a guy like Darnay Holmes, who's the fourth round pick this year out of UCLA. There's an opportunity for him. There's going to be opportunities for Logan Ryan, who was just added in free agency, as well as Julian Love, a player that could be moved around at both corner and safety. So the Giants, I think. Are saying to themselves, "Well, we've got some options. We've got a mix of youth and veterans, and now it's a matter of those guys going out there and executing at a high level."
2: When you think about, you know, the Giants in the draft, obviously now that Darnay Holmes uh, pick in this year's draft, uh, it proves to be monumental because it, with Baker on the roster, then Corey Ballantyne could could be another flip flop guy, um, you know, and then certainly with the with the injury to Xavier McKinney, you know the, the Logan Ryan signing is huge. That, that's such a huge pickup for them. The, the fact that a guy like Logan Ryan was even available is huge because this is not a guy that's been hanging on to the league the last couple of years. He led his team in tackles last year with the Tennessee Titans. I think he had 116, um, and, yeah. and that was from all over the place. He plays outside, he plays inside. He was responsible for eight uh, takeaways. Last year, four interceptions, four forced fumbles. So, Logan Ryan is going to be a huge addition to, to this secondary, um, and and I think Darnay Holmes is going to be uh, he's going to be fun to watch. It's been fun to watch Darnay Holmes in practice every day. get keeps getting better, and I, I tell you, every single time the ball is in the air, he he's making a play, whether he's knocking it down or whether he's you know out of the air or knocking it out of the receiver's hands as it comes in. Uh, he's got great ball skills. He he never panics with it in the air. So. Um, you know, despite all this adversity, the Giants, I think, have really done a good job adjusting and adapting.
3: Holmes was a very opportunistic player in college at UCLA. He had eight interceptions. So, to your point, it's encouraging to see that style of play carry over throughout training camp. He also had 17 passes defense. So that's a player that has been very aggressive in camp and the Giants are going to look to give him some opportunities in the early going. And speaking of opportunities, that brings us to the first unofficial depth chart that was revealed yesterday. And let's delve into that a bit, Sean, because I think one of the first things that jumps out to me is right in your wheelhouse and that's the offensive line. Right now, the offensive line on the first unofficial depth chart from left to right is Andrew Thomas. At left tackle, Will Hernandez, left guard, Nick Gates, at center, Kevin Zeitler, at right guard, and Cameron Fleming at right tackle. So the first thing that comes to mind is clearly the fact that you're going to have three new starters penciled in right now, but let's start with the center position, a position you know very well. We knew coming into camp, okay, it was going to be a battle between Spencer Pulley, who was the incumbent from last season, as well as, of course, John Jalapio, who was briefly here and is no longer with the team, and then Nick Gates, who had played at right guard and right tackle, but was going to be shifting over to center. And based on this unofficial depth chart, it looks like week one, he won the job and Going to be handing the ball off to Daniel Jones.
2: Lance, it's pretty impressive the the growth that Nick Nick Gates has been able to show. I remember last year hearing Pat Shermer talk about how much they really like Nick Gates and his his flexibility uh, to play guard and tackle. Uh, they really liked his toughness. Uh, certainly, Dave Gettleman loves you know his anchor. He, he's 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 got a very good ba- base to him. Um, you know, I think he's still learning on how to use his hands at center because at tackle everything's about space, keeping everybody away from you. At center, you, you know it's close quarters combat. So you've got to have quick hands. You've got to do a great job of getting them on people. But he's really adjusted well to sliding into center. And you know there really hasn't been any quarterback center exchanges underneath. I think the shotgun snap is probably the one thing that's the toughest. And anytime you play center, the toughest thing to handle is a shaded nose guard to your snapping hand. Whether it's a run play, whether it's a pass play, that's the toughest thing to do to reach a guy or to be one-on-one when you have a guy shaded on, on your snap hand. So the one thing I'm watching is those shotgun snaps. When he does have a big, powerful guy on his nose, that's that's always a handful no matter how big of a center you are. But th- the other factor with it is just, you know, look, this is a new offense for him. He's still picking up uh, the language and, and trying to figure out what defenses are trying to do, and that's paramount. You couple that with a young quarterback and Daniel Jones who's new to this offense as well. That synergy needs to be an uncommunicated, um, you know that they need to be together. Even if you can't communicate, you have to see the same things, think the same things, be on the same page. So uh, that quarterback-center relationship, it's not just physical, it's mental. And then he's got to regurgitate it to, to his guards and tackles. So there's certainly a lot on his plate. Um, but I've been very impressed with how tough he is. Uh, I love the way he's trying to finish blocks. Um, and I think the fact that you get to, to sandwich him in between two of the widest bodies at guard in the NFL, and Kevin Zeitler and Will Hernandez, I think it's going to help him out a lot.
3: Well, and it's very impressive considering, Sean, no preseason games, and he has yet to start a game at center. We know he started a few games last season, but that was at right tackle and right guard. So you say to yourself, if there's any season where you're going to go into the year with a brand new center, you'd want to maybe have that first simulated game before it actually counts for real. So it's impressive that he was able to win the job without a game, showing what he could do in comparison to Spencer Pulley. And then number two, the fact that his first test is going to come against arguably one of the best defenses in the NFL, because we know the Steelers had 54 sacks, led the NFL in that category last year, and have a plethora of big-time pass rushers, whether it be on the edge or, to your point, right at the nose tackle position.
2: Yeah, it really is impressive, and especially when you think about with Jalapio getting hurt last year and Spencer Pulley being there. Spencer Pulley, he started 16 games for the Chargers a few years ago, um, yeah. you know, and he's filled in admirably. I think Spencer Pulley is a very capable center. So, to your point, for Nick Gates to have none of that experience, to not have a preseason game to really show uh, that he can hold the fourth down, and the fact that that he is ahead of Spencer Pulley is very impressive. Uh, I think Spencer Pulley has a lot of value uh, for them if he's at the sixth man, if he can come in. I saw Spencer Pulley playing guard a little bit in training camp and in one of the scrimmages, too. So uh, he's got some versatility as well. But the reality is you look at Nick Gates, a young kid, um, who's you know basically in his second year. Um, financially, it, 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 he's cheaper than Spencer Pulley. So if you've got Nick Gates and you've got Spencer Pulley and they're basically on the same level, you go with the guy who has a really good chance of being your center for the next few years. So, you kind of look at that like, all right, if these horses are even, I'm going to take the the younger horse and the cheaper horse right now and let him kind of grow into that. So Nick Gates really reminds me a lot of myself coming out of college. I played left tackle at Rutgers. I moved inside. I ended up playing guard and center. And then I really didn't start. I didn't even become a full-time starter until my third year. And I actually started at guard as opposed to center. But um, playing guard made me a better center. And then also having the chance to go inside and play center it helped me help out my guards because I knew what the tough blocks were for them and I knew who needed help on different plays. And and I really like uh, the way that Nick Gates kind of works well with his guards and I think it's going to be a nice fit.
3: Sean, I'm glad you brought up your own personal experience and the dynamics between offensive linemen because that brings me to a big-picture perspective and I'm curious where you stand on this because you understand – The relationships between all the offensive linemen is so key, that chemistry, so that you have that continuity game in and game out. Now, it's not just Nick Gates. You've got two new tackles that the Giants are also incorporating. So, Andrew Thomas has not been in a game where he's played next to Will Hernandez. Last season, it was Nate Solder. And then Zeitler, even though he's a polished veteran, he has yet to play in a game situation next to Cam Fleming, who also is a veteran. So, it's not necessarily the first rodeo for these guys, Sean, in terms of them playing next to new personalities personnel, but you're talking about a lot of movable new pieces that have not been in sync with one another. From your experience, I'm curious, how much time does that take in your estimation? Is there one blueprint that follows all? Is it a week? Do you need three games? Does it sometimes take till mid-season? Where do you stand on that?
2: Lance, the answer to that is yes. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you can't break out the calendar when you're talking about chemistry, uh, especially when it's, you know, offensive linemen. It's reps and It can't can't be walk-through reps, you know, because walk-through reps are great. Yeah, we've got that guy. No, it's got to be hip-to-hip. It's got to be reps in pads. And that's where, you know, man, you want to talk about a tough year to have three new starters on your offensive line. It's this year. To your point, no preseason games. You haven't had all of those reps in full pads. Training camp is already limited with how many full pad practices you can have. So that aspect of it is huge because the footwork is big. The combination blocks is really where that chemistry comes into play. Sure, you're all going to have your one-on-one battles, and and you know whether it's third down or pass rush, whatever you're one-on-one. But in the run game, is all about the combination blocks. How do you attack a defense? Are you going to attack them at the nose guard? Are you going to attack them at the three technique, which is the defensive lineman on the outside shoulder of, of the front side guard, or are you going to t- attack them on the defensive end that's in the five technique, which is on the outside shoulder of the tackle? Well, depending on who you're going to attack. That's where the combo block on the front side is going to occur. So it could be the guard and the tackle. It could be the guard and the center. It could be the tackle and the tight end. All of that needs to mesh. When you look at this offense under Jason Garrett, obviously we don't have any preseason game film to look for. For So we just go back to what they did in Dallas. The Cowboys have been one of the top rushing teams in the league since Jason Garrett was there. In, in, I think it was eight years he was there every year they were they were in the tops they've twice led the league in rushing and it's because of that combo blocking that power running game and the mesh that that offensive line had yeah they've got talented guys in Tyron Smith uh, Lyle Collins Zach Martin Travis Frederick who retired um, they had a lot of talented guys but it was their technique and the combo blocks that made them so great so that's what they have to work on uh certainly nobody's got a tougher job right now than Andrew Thomas the rookie left tackle and you know, when the giants drafted him fourth overall the thought was well nate soldier will play left he'll play right and now he can kind of grow into the role um, obviously with nate Soldier opting out he's been thrust into action he's a quick learner he's had a lot of growing pains i think early on and just figuring out the speed is different the power is different um, he's struggled a little bit in pass pro but coming out of college i actually thought he was a better run blocker than a pass blocker so the run game is going to be crucial for him and you pair him up with Will Hernandez, that's a lot of beef right there working together. So uh, definitely the chemistry is big. When I came to the Giants in 04, um, I was new. We drafted Chris Nee in the second round. Deal was already here. Uh, We had Luke Pettigrew at left tackle. Uh, The next year we signed Kareem McKenzie. He came in, solidified the right tackle spot. Um, And then Rich Soiberg came back and was healthy and we moved Deal out. But it took us a couple of years to really create that mindset and that culture and that that group chemistry, uh, so you know the, the calendar aspect of it. I, I would say it takes at least a, a year, maybe a year and a half, to really establish your your will and and your identity as an O line.
3: As far as the rest of the unofficial depth chart for the offense, no major surprises. We've got it. wide receiver Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Darius Slade enlisted, Evan Ingram at tight end, Saquon at the running back, Eli Penny at the fullback, and then, of course, Daniel Jones under center. In a little bit, we'll get into the defensive side of the ball and some noted observations from Sean I with respect to what that means for the upcoming season. But in the meantime, let's open up the phone lines at 201-939-4513. 201-939-4513. Jerome is in Charlotte. He gets us going here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Jerome?
4: Hey, guys. I love the show. Um, I love how you uh, appreciate um, Eli, you know, coming up. Every, every time I pull up online, I see Eli. Pre- much appreciation and love for him. Um, my question is with the defense and a, and the defensive line and linebackers. Um, how much would you think they who and how much you think they would use the net like the NASCAR package uh, we used to have? Um, how much you think that they would use it and who who will be on on it? Well,
3: appreciate the phone call, Jerome. Thanks so much for weighing in and. He's referring to, Sean, of course, a package that you're familiar with from when your teammates lined up, and especially Steve Spagnuolo, who loved to toy with having sometimes four defensive ends on the field at the same time. I think it goes to, if Patrick Graham's defense is going to be multiple, Sean, and he's going to mix and match personnel, then there could be some situations, depending on who they're playing on a week-to-week basis, where he's going to try to maximize the ability to get as many pass rushers on the field at the same time. But I also think that we can't lose track on the fact that you also want guys on the field that have the ability to stop the run in addition to get after the quarterback.
2: yeah, it's a great question from Jerome and I, and I think to be honest with you everybody's still trying to figure that out and, and they're waiting for that those guys to emerge. Um, of course that NASCAR package that, that Jerome's referring to, um, you know look that, that was OCU minorora. Uh, that was justin tuck um you know as chris canty was a part of that strahan was was before he retired so when you think about those rushers i mean those those guys were striking fear in the opponent the opponent whether it was a quarterback or a tackle um that they were no doubt fierce rushers on their own so uh, i think the giants would like to have that identity and they would like to have that speed and that ability with their nascar package they don't have near the accomplished players that i just named but when I see this defense in what we call their nickel or their sub defense, that NASCAR package, the two guys that really jump out of me that are moving around, we call it the amoeba defense because it's just constantly in motion. They don't want to get set and they don't want the offense to be able to recognize who the rushers are. But it's it's O'Shane is, and it's uh, Lorenzo Carter. Those are the two guys that are kind of walking around. And then you would see um, Leonard Williams out there, um, you know, they, Dalvin Tomlinson would be out there sometimes. So they would basically go to, like, three defensive linemen and then try to mix in some linebackers to add that speed. So they're still trying to figure out who, who those best four rushers are. Um, you know, Blake Martinez has some ability as well to get involved in the mix in the front there. He did it in Green Bay. Um, but I think Lorenzo Carter, he definitely has to be a factor. Um, Zimenez needs to show up, and those are guys that they're really counting on. Devontae Downs is a guy that's really – had a great camp. Um, you know, he kept showing up, play after play. Um, he's done a great job rushing against running backs too. So, uh, Patrick Graham definitely—he he does not like to show the same look twice. So you're going to get multiple fronts. You're going to get five down looks where every offensive lineman is covered by somebody. Somebody's going to drop out. They're going to rush four, and then they're going to rush five guys, and and you're going to see a lot of twist games. There is so much twist action with those stand-up guys. And they're trying to create these rushing lanes by running twists. So it's going to be a very complex system. And um, you know, I flash back to whenever we would play the Patriots. That's what they would do to us. And you go back to Super Bowl 42, Super Bowl 46. On third down, it was a different look every time. It was Jarvis Green. It was Richard Seymour. It was you know, um, Darius Thomas, Mike Vrabel on the other side. And those guys were constantly running twist games on us. So they, they definitely challenge your techniques.
3: Well, you bring up a great point in terms of the NASCAR package that you have to have the personnel that enables you to put all of those guys on the field at once. And right now, the Giants are much younger. There's not as many proven commodities. But Marcus Golden, Lorenzo Carter, O'Shane Zimenez, Kyler Fackrell are certainly four players that come to mind that have the ability to get after the quarterback. The question is do you maximize your ability on defense by putting all four of them potentially on the field at one time? Let's yeah, Lance, so I'll just jump on. Yeah, You're ahead.
2: talking about NASCAR. You know, When you think of NASCAR, why did they call it NASCAR? Well, speed, right? And we're talking about stock True. car. We're talking about 200 miles an hour, just pure adrenaline. So that's what they need from that package. You need speed on the edges to force that quarterback to step up, and then you've got to have guys that that are coming in the A and B gaps to get the penetration. So um, the guy that I'm I'm really curious to see – how he fits into this is Kyler Fackrell, who they signed from the Green Bay Packers, who's got some ability. But then Carter Coughlin is a guy who was deceptively fast coming out in the draft. He was he was the fastest outside linebacker. His forty time w- was way faster than all these other outside rushers. And he spent his time at Minnesota in a two point stance. He was a he was a two point defensive end. Um, he, he was very accomplished at Minnesota, and he's a really good athlete. So I, I'm curious to see how he fits into the mix. And then, of course, Marcus Golden, we haven't said his name. He's one of the other guys that rotates in there. Um, obviously, him with double-digit sacks last year uh, figures to be a big part of the pass rush.
3: Yeah, Coughlin, very accomplished at Minnesota. 22-and-a-half career sacks, 40 tackles for a loss. Length two, to your point, Sean, in terms of his athleticism. So if he doesn't make an immediate impact on defense, you could certainly see him chipping in on special teams. Let's head back to the phone lines. Charlie is in Portland, Maine. What's happening, Charlie? Yeah.
1: Hey, Lance. Hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Now, if you were playing, and you were starting Monday night, going against Haywood, I think you would have a hard time with this guy. I think you would be accomplished and you'd be able to do it. What do you think, you know, our guy Gates is going to do when he's never played a snap at center in a real game? How is he going to go up? I just think this is, we got a rookie uh, tackle, We've got a journeyman tackle on the other side who's never started, you know, a regular season, you know, game week one. And then we got a guy who's never played center. I just I just see this as a disaster. I mean, how do you think he's going to do against Haywood when he lines up right on his nose?
2: Well, it's definitely a great question. I think disaster might be a strong word for uh, the, the matchup, but... Um, you know, look, the Steelers have always been a really good defense, and they've always had a great scheme. Um, you know, I think the if there's if there's a silver lining in this, it's that the Steelers run a three-four defense. Well, guess what? The Giants have been seeing every day in in training camp a three-four defense. So from a scheme standpoint and a concept standpoint, it's not going to be that different, and that helps out a lot. If you have if your defense runs a four-three personnel and scheme, and then all of a sudden you have to morph. Into a three-four, things are different, and things look different at the line. The communication is different. The quarterback sees things differently because that fourth linebacker standing up can kind of mess you up. So I think that's uh, you know that, that's going to help out from a recognition standpoint, but no doubt about it, I expect to see a different center in Nick Gates in the third and the fourth quarter than in that first and second quarter because it, he's still going to be getting his you know equilibrium and figuring out how. The defense is trying to attack them. Cam Hayward is a strong man. And I think you know, my advice for any offensive lineman going up against him, I feel like the, the the Pittsburgh Steelers always have some powerful rusher, whether it was Justin Smith, Kimo Von Ohlhofen back in the day, who I used to go against. They always had the great hump move. And the hump move is you start the bull rush move, and you kind of get the guy leaning on one leg, and then Reggie White patented it. But you just kind of like throw the guy to the side. And that's the one thing Nick Gates is going to have to figure out. All right. How do you anchor on the power rush, but not allow yourself to be vulnerable to that hump move? Um, the Steelers do a great job of that. Cam Hayward has been a big part of that, um, but he also he lines up out outside too on a three technique quite a bit. So you know, it's not just um, you know Cam Hayward up front as the nose tackle. They actually kind of list him as the as a defensive tackle. So I think Cam Hayward will actually probably be lined up on the guards more. He'll be going against Will Hernandez. Um, and Zeitler more than the center because they have Tyson Alu Alu uh, at nose tackle right now. And um, and then they've got St- Stefan Tuitt, who's another big dude. So it's, listen, it's not just Nick Gates, though. I mean, you got TJ Watt, who had 14 and a half sacks last year, and Bud Dupree on either side. So everybody's going to have their hands full. Um, you know, we used to always kind of pinpoint one guy every week and say, hey, you got the hard hat this week. You know, if we were playing Demarcus Ware, it was like, deal. All right, you got the hard hat, man. You got Demarcus Ware. Um, you know, depending on who you have matchup-wise. This week, everybody's got the hard hat. And there is there is nobody that, you know, is going to be looking to help everybody else out. They're all going to be looking for chips from our running backs and the tight ends.
5: All right, Charlie,
3: appreciate the phone call as we move along here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Getty is set for week one between the Giants and the Steelers. We were just talking about Pittsburgh's defense as Sean laid out and the challenges that's going to pose for the Giants' offense. Well, let's switch gears to the Giants' defense. Earlier, we were talking about Logan Ryan, and Logan Ryan officially joined the team late last week. He spoke to the media for the first time yesterday, and while he was interacting with reporters, one of the things that came up was about the quick transition to all of a sudden learning this defense, having not been with the team throughout the course of camp. So he was asked about whether or not he thinks he's going to learn the scheme and contribute in week one after officially joining the team late last week. This was his response. Yeah,
6: obviously agreed to terms a week ago um, with you know COVID testing and all that. I begged for an iPad. They gave me one. And I've been studying film about 20 hours a day, a um, variety of positions, and I, I got to see my mom, you know, for one, you know, lives an hour south, obviously. Um, she's scared to death of the sun right now because of COVID, so I got to see her for a half hour and went right back to the film. So I've been, uh, my wife and kids are back home um, in Nashville and, and uh, where they're at and I'm up here by myself. I have nothing to do but watch a ton of film and start preparing for the, for the Steelers. So um, a lack of film won't be, won't be an issue for me. I'm gonna do everything I can preparation wise Luckily, I played for Pat Graham, I played for Joe Judge before, and it's a system that I'm familiar with. And um, I played played in this system before in my career, so I think that helped me a little bit with the terminology and, and things of that nature.
3: And that can't be overlooked, Sean. He's got ties to New England, and while this is Patrick Graham's scheme, this is not Bill Belichick's scheme, let's not be naive, all of these former assistants take something from Belichick. And the other thing that I've brought up multiple times on this program, Sean, he comes from Tennessee, where Mike Vrabel was the head coach, also an individual that you referenced earlier, ties to Belichick, and Dean Pease was the Titans' defensive coordinator each of the last two seasons. He has since retired. He's another individual that was a defensive coordinator under Belichick. So there is a lot of connections with Logan Ryan to New England's scheme, and that should help him at least pick up some of these concepts a little bit quicker than maybe a player who has never been exposed to New England.
2: Well, Lance, let's you know not put the cart before the horse. Here's why he's going to have no problem picking up the concepts and why mentally he's already ahead of the game. He went to Rutgers. He's a Scarlet Knight. So I should let off with that. my this guy's apologies. Got his yes. football intelligence is through the roof. I, I got to give my Scarlet Knight shout out. The other thing there too you is, go. you know, look Rutgers, we, we've had a ton of Super Bowl rings over the last year. You look at the last 15 years. I think a Scarlet Knight has won a Super Bowl probably 75% of the time um, you know, over the last 15 years. So there's
3: Sean, though, why hasn't it translated to a Big 10 title? I'm sorry. I need to put that. That's a that different
2: time. show, Lance. <laughs> okay, um, all right. My apologies. We, we don't have enough time to to the banter <laughs> about all that. Um, so I think for Logan Ryan, no doubt he understands the versatility. Um, you know the the system, the language. You know that that's such a big part in in anytime you're playing the position he does with the other safeties and corners and linebackers and making sure you know you know what coverages you're in. If you're in zone, everybody's got their spacing. If you're in man, how are we going to handle a rub route, a pick route? Are we are we switching it off? Are we are we are we manning it up? Um, it kind of becomes basketball if you will, a little pick and roll action. How are you going to defend that? So Logan Ryan has done it for, for a long time and been really good at it. I think the thing when you look at Patrick Graham, when you look at the Patriots uh, defense, you know, when it was Brian Floors, um, when you look at Mike Vrabel, all of that, it's they love the versatility. They love the element of surprise. And, and I think that's where you look at a guy like Logan, Logan Ryan in the backfield. It's an art form. To be able to disguise coverages and to look not to, to not show them what you're trying to do defensively on third down until that play clock is down to three, two, one, and then you buzz out of wherever you're at. So Logan Ryan, he's he's a master at disguising the blitz. Um, he's been a very successful nickel blitzer, and, and by that I mean he's lined up in the slot over one of the slot receivers, and then he comes on a blitz, whether he's on the weak side. Or on the strong side, he's done a great job of getting home, and when he gets there, he makes the tackle. He's he's not a he's not a whiffer um, on the quarterback. So that's been a big part of his game. He's a great open field tackler, and I mentioned before he led the Titans in tackles last year. A lot of that was tackles in space. So uh, you're gonna you need a guy like that um, on the field. You need a veteran presence uh, to help out some of these young corners, in Darnay Holmes and and Ballantyne, uh, Williamson. So no doubt that that's it's a huge pickup for for a number of different reasons.
3: And on your point about him being an effective blitzer, career-high four-and-a-half sacks last season, in addition to your point about tackles, he also had a career-high eight quarterback hits. It was overall a career year for Logan Ryan because there were so many injuries in the Tennessee secondary that Ryan had to assume and take on some extra responsibilities. And speaking of versatility, as Sean just hit on, Ryan was asked about the fact that DeAndre Baker is no longer on the team and Sam Beal opted out and there's some younger options on the outside. Whether or not he would be Comfortable if the Giants defense asked him to assume an outside corner role. This was his response.
6: I'm 100% prepared and learning all the positions for sure. And, you know, where I line up from week to week will definitely be a, a G5 classified team first, <laughs> Joe Judge will tell you later type uh, answer. But yeah, I'm prepared. I played outside corner a lot of years in this league. I started outside corner Super Bowl before, so I've had experience at it. I played outside corner at Rutgers for four years. Right down the road, so I definitely have experience at the position for sure. But um, uh, if the team asked me to play that, um, I'll definitely, I'll definitely do that. That was a rush hour reference, Lance. If you didn't get that, by the way,
3: that did not go over my head. I can assure you that, based on me being a film guru, I did not lose sight of that. As Self-proclaimed also, wow. the film guru? Uh, are you How about uh, that? Is you? that
2: because you're a Jackie Chan fan or a Chris no, Rock? I'm just aficionado
3: yeah. of film. That's all. Oh, Chris okay, Tucker. Chris Barry. Tucker. Sorry. <laughs> No, I'm not necessarily a Jackie Chan or Chris Tucker fan club, number one guy, but uh, I'm caught up on my varied genres of film. So Rush Hour was certainly something that was viewed multiple times over the course of my uh, film reviewing career. Some
2: people, when they hear G5, they they think airplanes. So, you know, it's just you got to clarify that. Good job, Johnny.
3: Yes, John Schmelk very much on top of the little subtleties of Logan Ryan's commentary. Also important to note, he did reference Rutgers. We have a quota on this show. I don't think we've hit the quota yet in terms of Rutgers references. Yes, so we have. We <laughs> well, Lance Sean wants to talk about Big front. Ten. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Logan Ryan's point did emphasize, Sean, what you and I were just talking about, and it was the fact that he's more than comfortable being shifted around. So if they ask him to play near the line of scrimmage, they ask him to play in the slot, the outside, free safety, strong safety, you name it, he's been exposed to a little bit of that. In fairness... He played just over 850 snaps in the slot last season. So that's where the bulk of his experience from last season came. But that doesn't mean that Patrick Graham is going to shy away from moving him around, considering between Ryan and Julian Love, as well as Peppers, I'd include, Sean. You have three players that you can move between the slot, corner, as well as safety.
2: Yeah, and look, when you look at these offenses now around the league and what they're trying to do, I mean, look, they're out there with three and four wide receivers, sometimes even five. You know, they bring out the loop-de-loop from Varsity Blues. And you've <laughs> got to have five corners, five capable corners, because, you know, let's face it, once they do that once, they look at the matchups and they find out, okay, hey, where's the weak link? Who are we going to attack? And they've teams have gotten so good at that. Quarterbacks have gotten so good at that, identifying all that. So you absolutely need guys like that. Um, but you know, I, I, think that it's an art craft, it's an art form and you've got to find a way to figure out how to disguise all that. But then what it comes down to is physically, you know, what kind of tools do you have? Do you understand how to use your hands and how to jam a guy and, you know, how to do it without getting a flag? That's, you know, that's a big part of, um, you know, playing that position and, and you're out in space, you know, look, it's sometimes it's, it's mono mono, and, and you've got to find a way to. To get that extra edge, whether it's film study and picking up different route combinations and how each receiver, you know, maybe gives something away in their route and the way that they um, try to sell a slant and go, or you know, the way that they um, raise their hips up or chop their feet or chop their hands. So all of those things are, are things that you can learn, um, you know, off the field in the film room and in kind of doing some of your film study.
3: Logan Ryan, by the way, is going to be wearing number 23. That's the jersey he selected. He actually jokingly mentioned that he talked to Saquon Barkley about grabbing his old number 26, but the wheeling and dealing was cut off relatively quickly because Ryan didn't think that he's in the same ballpark financially as what Saquon is asking for. And the reason I bring that up, because, you know, you were talking, Sean, about the rationale that Rutgers players utilize when they're on the field, and they should be commended for that. Well, his reasoning behind why he selected number 23 was because Uh... he watched the last dance, and he... Yeah, I could tell Schmelk already (laughs) is getting tired of this, but it has to be... Mentioned on this program because Logan Ryan opened the door. See, every time Sean I bring up Jordan, it's a very sore spot for Schmel Now, much like so Sean has a Rutgers quota,
6: Lance content. has a Jordan quota that we must meet on as many shows as possible.
2: All right, well, well I'm we're gonna, gonna hit
3: on everybody's quota today. Apparently, it's an equal opportunist program. But
2: anyway, Lance, I'm with you. I'm gonna tag team on that. I grew up a Bulls fan. I was born in Chicago, oh, so see? I'm there an, we I'm, go. I'm fine with tap dancing all over Schmelk oh, and his guys Knicks. Are you know, killing who, me. I mean, that's probably the last time the Knicks were even any good. Yeah, so. that is true. Actually, um, absolutely. That, <laughs> and that's. that's it's just truth. But, yeah, it's uh, – I mean, those were great rivalries. You know, Charles Oakley, and I see him around town here sometimes at some golf outings and stuff, and every time I see him, I just think about those matchups and Patrick Ewing. And, um, you know, actually, I've got a great poster down in my basement of Scottie Pippen. When he dunked on Patrick Ewing in that yes. playoff series, and Patrick Ewing hates that photo, like I mean, despises it because he got posterized. It was one of the few times
1: you guys realize I control your mics, right? I'm, right. I'm just letting you so, know. But here's the <laughs> but here's the story with this,
2: Schmuck. Here's the story. So, uh, just real quick, I'll, I'll steal a couple minutes of our show. No, here. steal as much as you want, Schmuck. So, I'm totally fine. I lived things. in I was living in Madonna, Ohio, and before I moved to New Jersey. And the Cavs were, you know, it was the Browns and the Cavs. Bernie Kosar was the quarterback. They were going to the playoffs. The Browns were great. The Cavs were great. Craig Elo and Mark Price and Larry Nance, all these guys. So this is when they were playing at the arena in Akron. I can't remember the name of it at the time. But um, they were playing the Bulls. And my dad said, hey, I got tickets through a friend, floor seats, the Cavs-Bulls, and I'm a I'm a huge basketball fan at this point. I'm, i just started playing basketball in fifth grade, organized, and my buddies and I, you know, this is when the Bulls are in their heyday. And so we're there, you know, hours before tip off. Players come out, they're warming up. Scotty Pippen comes out and I've got a basketball, and I go over, I'm on the court, and I'm like, you know, Mr. Pippen, can you sign this football or basketball? And he's like, not now, I'm warming up. You know, in his deep voice. So I was like, I was appalled. I was like taking it back and I'm like, all right, what do you say? So I was so distraught, and I was like, oh, man, that's a bummer. You know, like I walked back, and I'm like, I should have said, I just that's all right, I wanted Michael's autograph anyways. But <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think of that. You know, I was too young to really have a lip at that point. So, But, yeah. you know, Ozzie Newsome's at the game. He's playing for the Browns. So I got Ozzie to sign the basketball. Um, it was a great day. Um, got a bunch of Cavs and Bulls to sign some stuff. So I told that story to my wife when we were dating one time. And I actually, she used to always complain to me when she'd come up to training camp up in Albany and she'd be like, why are you the last one off the field? The last one out of the locker room. She's like, you take forever. Everybody else has already come out. She's like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't walk off the field without signing for every kid. Like, I can't walk by a kid and not sign for him because I was that kid once. And I don't ever want a kid to say that about me or to go home and be like, man, that guy was a jerk. He didn't sign for me. So." I was always very sensitive to that, but also I felt like, you know what, this is a great opportunity to, to, you know, make an impression on those kids and have them go home happy, and they got to meet somebody, and you know what, maybe they love the game because of it. So I always kind of wore that on my sleeve. I told that story to my wife, and then she never complained again about it. Fast forward to a few years later um, for my birthday, I got, I opened up this poster, and it's a poster of Scottie Pippen dunking on Patrick Uh. Ewing. And it says, to Sean, better late than never, Scotty Pippen.
1: <laughs> she oh, wow. That
5: through, is a great story. Through a friend that of ours. That is fantastic.
2: She's like, oh, I'm friends with Scotty Pippen's wife. Amy reached out to her and said, hey, any chance you could put me in touch with Scotty Pippen's wife? Here's what I want to get, and I want." It. they told the story to Scotty. He found out about it. He signed it. He was a great sport about it. Signed the poster, and it was one of the coolest birthday gifts I've ever got. It's, hanging, it's framed and hanging down in, in my basement in, in the, uh, on the wall, and it's, it's pretty special. It's pretty cool.
3: That is pretty cool. I have an unsigned poster of Ewing dunking on Pippen in my basement, so oh, I guess yeah. that makes it safe. All right, turnabout's fair play. <laughs> yes, exactly. Scottie Pippen, the most disrespectful dunk in NBA history on Patrick Ewing, Game 6 of the 94 semis, where he then walks over to Spike Lee and tells him to sit down and shut up after the play, (laughs) which to me, Sean, was the icing on the cake. That's what not enough people talk about. It's what he did after the dunk, after
2: stepping over you.
3: How about we get to some phone
2: calls? I thought he said, hey – it's got to be the shoes.
3: We have some great calls on the line that want to talk about the defense yes, and the but depth they also, chart. All right. We haven't been finished pouring the salt right. in the We've tortured John enough. Yes, I, fans, I think you so, have, actually. Yeah.
5: Go ahead, Lance. Thank you.
3: <laughs> we will move along and get back to Giants news and notes throughout the course of Big Blue Kickoff Live, I promise you. And let's open up the lines at 201-939-4513. You can also tweet at us, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Sean O'Hara, 60. James is in Virginia, and he joins us here on BBKL. What's happening, James?
1: Oh,
5: not much. How y'all doing? Uh, Lance, John, and Sean O'Hara, how y'all doing? Appreciate you, Doing very well. What's on your mind? y'all do? Um, I'm just calling real quick, um... I'm thinking this team this this year uh, for this season should do pretty good with their new signings and the new coach and all other staff. Um, but the thing about it, too, they just play their game. I think they're going to be all right, even though we got a kind of hard schedule coming up. I think they're going to do good each game. They'll probably um, definitely improve. And one quick note, are they going to let fans in the parking lot at Giant Stadium, you know, still – Um, then I'll take it off the air and go
6: Giants.
3: All right, James, appreciate the phone call. And I guess he was referencing tailgating. And to my knowledge, that will not be allowed. There's not going to be any fans allowed at MetLife Stadium for an indefinite period of time. John Mara actually addressed reporters last week. He was asked about his feelings. He said, well, for sure, September, there's not going to be any fans. He said, is it possible things could change depending on state regulations? Absolutely. But his exact phrase was he's not very optimistic. So, you know, that's just where it stands at this point. But we will still have full coverage here on Giants.com. Every game will be televised. So we're hoping that you'll still find a way to interact with us as well as follow the team through just a more technological feel in 2020. Let's head back to the phone lines. Kevin is in Las Vegas. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Kevin?
4: Hey, gentlemen. How are you doing today?
3: Doing very well, Kevin. What's on your mind?
4: Uh, First thing, I wanted to talk about the linebackers. Looking at the depth chart, it's pretty interesting to me. They were late-round picks. I think seventh, both uh, Crowder and Brunson. But they seem to be taking important roles. I know I read a little bit that it's because special teams usage, too, but... um, I think that says a lot more than, you know, have they been uh, pretty impressive throughout the uh, the camp so far? And they basically earned those positions, I suppose. I mean, there's no other answer to it.
3: Well, they had four seventh-round picks, Sean, this year. Three of them made yeah. the roster. Chris Williamson, the only exception. He's on the practice squad. And two, the point to the caller these guys are going to have to contribute on special teams because when you are the second layer of linebackers on the roster in order to get on the field early in your career, in all likelihood you're going to be asked to contribute to Thomas McGahee's units.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And you can see the draft definitely reflects that versatility, uh, that ability to contribute on special teams. You know, look, let's face it. I think with, with Tay Crowder, with TJ Brunson, um, Kyler Fackrell, I think, especially early on in the season, you're going to see these guys rotating in because with no preseason games, guys are still going to be trying to get into game shape. So, they're going to get a couple of series. They're going to, you know, if, if, if the offense um, goes on a 10 to 12 play drive, you know, they're they're going to need to come in and, and keep guys fresh. So, uh, they're going to be a big factor. I tell you, T.J. Brunson, he 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 shows up, and you know that whether it was a, a red zone interception that he would recognize a route and jump jump in front of the receiver, or you know a tip drill during one of the scrimmages. He, he constantly shows up and, and makes some plays. So I'm I'm excited to see T.J. Brunson. Um, obviously, Devontae Downs has really locked down that will position. Um, he's done a really good job. He's been great in coverage. But I think with these linebackers, you know, that's the big aspect of it is, okay, how are they in, in coverage? Because offenses now love to create those matchups with the running back out of the backfield, and um, certainly the Pittsburgh Steelers do a great job of that. Um, ben Ben loves to get his running backs involved. Um, You know, obviously we know what James Conner brings to that offense, but let's not forget about Eric Ebron. You know, they signed him this offseason, and he's a big-time red zone target. So when you get down in the red zone, it's either a safety or a linebacker in coverage. And, you know, Giants fans know that tight ends have been, you know, have been our kryptonite down in the red zone, and we've been just bleeding touchdowns to tight ends. So that's going to be a big matchup to watch for and see how the Giants want to adapt and handle that.
3: Well, I think that's a great point, Troy. Plus, they also have Vance McDonald, too, as their other tight end. He's an elusive guy that has shown the ability to make big plays down the field, too. So they're going to be tested with multiple tight end looks throughout the course of week one. And I think the reason why, obviously, these young guys at the linebacker position also are going to be called upon to play maybe some more significant roles is, number one, the defense is relatively young. Sean, as you hinted on. So it falls right in line in terms of what the Giants are building. And remember, they parted ways with Ryan Connolly, another young linebacker who was part of the draft class last season. So that's more of a reason if Connolly's not here and he was another young guy, now you're going to ask guys like Tate Crowder, TJ Brunson, and Carter Coughlin to fulfill that role. Crowder, by the way, started off his career as a running back and transitioned to the defensive side of the ball. So he's got those athletic skill sets and traits to contribute on special teams. It's just going to be a matter of how quickly he catches on on the defensive side of the ball. So I hope that answered your question, Kevin, in terms of the outlook of that group.
2: And Lance, let's not leave out Cam Brown in this because uh, you know while I expect Cam Brown to be a factor, I think he's going to be a special teams force. Um, Watching him on kickoff team, He was the first guy down on the first three kickoffs that I watched. I mean, he beat everybody down. And I watched him annihilate somebody that came up to try to block him. So he's got super long arms. You talked about length at linebacker with Carter Coughlin. Cam Brown had the longest arms of any outside backer coming out of the draft this year. So he's got some special skills. He's more of a Sam linebacker, which means that he's on the strong side and line up in a two-point over the tight end usually. Um, But special teams, he's absolutely a factor.
3: Let's head back to the phone lines. Lance Ben Sean O'Hara with you here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Booker is in Atlanta. Booker, welcome to the program. What do you have for us?
4: Hey, guys. Thank you for that bumpy ride down memory lane as a Knicks fan. I don't know if I should <laughs> thank you or blame you. Uh, shout out. Well, to it's Charles our pleasure, Booker. There's Knicks nothing more than that we look
3: forward to than reminding you of such happy times.
4: Lance, we know you love to dunk on people figuratively anytime you get a chance to talk about the Bulls, but Speaking of a bumpy ride down memory lane, I want to harken back to our time during the Betcher era, and during that time, a lot of what was used to characterize his defense was attacking, and that attacking was based upon the presence of or wanting to have personnel to have an attacking defense. I'm concerned when we start talking about having a multiple defense being led by Patrick Graham that we could be having more of the same, that what looks good in principle doesn't always manifest on the field, and that the idea of being multiple is a great idea. But if we don't have the personnel, especially during a time like this when there are so many transitions, so much uncertainty regarding—I
3: don't know if we may have lost Booker. He may have cut off, but we certainly appreciate. He's there now. He's there now, Lance. He's there. Oh, he is there. Okay, Booker, you
6: still there? Hey guys, you hear me now? Yeah, I'm sorry, you cut off initially.
3: You were talking about James Betcher's scheme, Patrick Grant being multiple, and I guess somewhat worried about maybe the communication and things not being executed effectively. That's the gist I got of it.
4: Well, not quite completely. The, the idea that you have to have a certain type of personnel to execute a specific type of scheme, that multiple is based upon people who have the knowledge and skills and abilities to execute that scheme, and we've got a very young roster. I wanted to know how we would know if that was or wasn't working beyond the scoreboard and what would be some performance indicators we'd look for in the first quarter, second quarter, and subsequent quarters of the season. Keep up the great work, guys. Go easy on us Knicks fans, guys. Take it <laughs> easy.
3: Appreciate the phone call, Booker. Well, Sean, this goes back to I think what you were talking about earlier when you went up against the New England defense and you were talking about how second down, third down, it would look completely different because that New England defense loved to move people around. So I feel your exposure to that can maybe give us a glimpse of what you're expecting with Patrick Graham's defense and why New England's defense was so effective based on the skill set of the players or at least what you saw they did most effectively.
2: I think one of the things that makes the Patriots defense so good year in and year out is they are so specific with their with their jobs, and you know they've got that the slang "do your job," and they're, they they're so good at their each individual techniques. And you know defensively, that's really your spokes in a wheel. And if one spoke is out of alignment, it allows for the big play. So, uh, I think mission number one as a defense is don't give up the big play. You know, if a if, if team's going to score a touchdown, make them earn it. It's got to be 10 plays. They've got to be able to go down the field and not give up a sack, not have a penalty. That's hard to do. So when you look at the Giants' defense the last couple of years, they've been awful at big plays. I think they were 30th in the league last year in um, big plays given up. Why did that happen? Now, you talked about James Betcher's scheme. James Betcher, when the Giants hired him, he blitzed on 44% of the snaps down in Arizona. So that was what he did. Now, you can do that when you have Patrick Peterson – um, and you've got lockdown corners. But when you bring pressure and you bring pressure from the linebacker position or you get your safeties involved, which he'd love to do, you open up the middle of the field and your corners are on an island. And, look, we, we've seen that that works really well when you've got two absolute stud corners that can hold up and that love that challenge. But if that's not your personnel, you've got to adapt your system. And I think that's where we saw the Giants struggle with a lot of those big plays. They struggled to get pressure with just their front four. So in order to try to create pressure, they would have to bring in additional blitzers, and that's where you create a lot of one-on-one matchups. And if if one tackle is broken, it's a big play. So that's where I think this defense is going to be different. I think they're going to be um, they're going to be more sound from that standpoint. They're not going to be as aggressive as James Betcher uh, was when he, you know under his time with the Giants. But their aggressive blitz packages will look different. Pressure can come in a lot of different forms. And zone pressures can be a big part of it. It can just be sim- as simple as just what we call a dog blitz, which is not a full-on blitz is two linebackers. A dog blitz is just one linebacker. So you could you know call Sam dog one free is one type of defense where they bring the Sam and four defensive linemen, and then it's man coverage, and you've got one free safety um, in the middle of the field. So you can create pressure that way, and that creates one-on-one matchups up front, and now that Sam dog linebacker is either one-on-one with a tight end or one-on-one with a running back or if the offensive line is handling it now they've you've basically fanned out the offensive line and they're all in a one-on-one matchup so there's other ways to create pressure and I think um, obviously we're waiting to see what that looks like under Patrick Graham but when it was the Patriots like I said before it was third down is is ultimately where you can create the most havoc and the one thing that drives offense nuts is when you have a defense on third down and you've got seven guys standing at the line of scrimmage, and only one guy has his hand in the dirt. So you've got one down lineman, and you've got six or seven other guys walking around, and you're trying to identify, all right, who are, the, who are the, the rushers and who are the droppers? Who's in coverage and who's not? And who do we have to account for? Who does the running back have? Who does the tight end have? And who does the quarterback have as a hot? Those are all things that really make it tough and really stress offenses.
3: Based on what you just said, it reminded me of that game last season, not to get completely off topic, Sean, when the Jets played the Patriots and Sam Darnold was talking about seeing ghosts. And a big part of that was because they mix and match defensive personnel so much. Sometimes on a down, you can't tell the difference between who's coming at you and who's dropping back because yeah. that's why they're so effective.
2: I think we I think somebody played that soundbite at least once, right? <laughs> I'm seeing ghosts. And then it happened to be like right before Halloween too, right? So <laughs> uh, while, while we're at it with the Knicks, we might as well uh, get on the Jets as well. But yeah, that's yes. exactly what Equal you're trying to do. Yep. Yeah, you want to you want that quarterback to be uneasy back there, and to not tr- not understand what he's seeing. Um, and young quarterbacks they struggle with that. So it's it's definitely something that defenses try to do, and they try to attack.
3: Giants gave up 67 pass plays of 20 or more yards, as Sean alluded to. That was the sixth most in the NFL last season. Fifteen of them, by the way, were for 40 or more yards. That is definitely a statistic that they're going to have to clean up. Let's head back to the lines. Don is in Texas, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Don?
5: Hey, Lance. Hey, Sean. How you guys doing?
2: What's up, Don? You can't say Texas. It's a big state, man. I, know we, I <laughs> used to live down there. I mean, San Antonio's different than Dallas, and El no, Paso is like another in, island.
5: <laughs> I'm okay. In McKinney, Texas, just right next to Dallas.
2: Yeah, okay. You're in the, the, the metro, right?
5: That's right. That's correct, sir. All right. Sean, I got two questions for you, but before I get there, I'm going to answer Lance's question about why Rutgers hasn't won any Big Ten championships. I used to work in Robert Wood in New Brunswick. The parties used to go all night. By the time I was getting <laughs> off my shift, <laughs> by oh. the time I was getting off my shift at 7 a.m., the party was just ending. It had nothing to do with talent,
2: Lance. Don, you're right about that, man. We didn't win many games on Saturday, but Thursday night, we were undefeated. Uh, And I tell you, if it's 7 a.m. you were seeing people, you must have been at the grease trucks, my man.
5: Oh, my God. (laughs) Trying to get online behind those trucks? Sean, forget it. I was like, guys, don't you have somewhere to be or something like that? You know, (laughs) these guys working here are a little hungry. But anyway, so, Sean, I got two questions for you. One is based off an assessment. Uh, I just want to talk about Daniel Jones. Last year, watching him play as a rookie, whether he was excited or not, He kind of was tipping, this is what I'm seeing, please correct me if I'm wrong, he was opening up his hips a lot when he was going to throw the ball during play action. So a lot of the times his hips were close handing the ball to Barkley. And I know the line play wasn't that great either, but he was also tipping his hand a little bit. I'm not sure if I was seeing that correctly. I was hoping for some input on that. And my second question, and I'll take it off the air. Sean, you played with Eli for a long time. This dude is so even-tealed, you couldn't even tell if he won or lost. I mean, when he was raising the Lombardi trophy, I couldn't tell, did we win, did we lose? I'm not exactly sure. That's how even-tealed Eli was. For Daniel Jones, what challenges does he face going into year two? And I'll take my answer off the air, guys. Hi,
3: Don. Appreciate the call.
2: All right, Don, I appreciate the fact that you're continuing your Rutgers pride down in Texas as well as your Giants pride down in Cowboy territory. Um, I think this is a great question, and this is going to be a big component of the Giants season, let's be honest. And Daniel Jones' the second year, um, you know, I think for him, this offense is going to be very good for him. And I think having Saquon Barkley next to him is going to make him better. This is the best team he's ever been around, let's face it. Look, last year, absolutely, there were times where they were inept at offense. Um, up front, they were they were absolutely abysmal sometimes in the running game, unblocked defenders running through the hole, Saquon's dodging a guy in the backfield. That That's not competent football. And then I thought there were times where the pocket broke down, no doubt about it. We saw the forced fumbles in the pocket that Daniel Jones struggled with. I think those are all things that are going to look much improved. They're going to look totally different with this offense. I think there, there, there's going to be – you know They're not going to beat themselves like we saw last year. But for Daniel, look, the, the guy is unbelievably accurate. And I think that's the one thing that you look at as a rookie last year. Yeah, the he took a lot of sacks, and there were the forced fumbles as well. But they weren't because he was burping the baby. He wasn't back there patting the air out of the ball. Like when he made his decision to throw the football, the ball came out. And that's the one thing that young quarterbacks really struggle with. They hold on to the ball too long. If the first guy's not open, boy, they take a long time to get to their second and third read. Daniel gets through his progressions really quickly. So your hip question, um, you know, I'll say this about Daniel Jones: he's not used to being under center. When he was at Duke, he was all shotgun, and it was zone read. It's the footwork is totally different. And just like anybody that you know plays golf or any other sports, it all starts with your feet and your footwork. And you've got to have that down to a science. Um, Being under center, it's totally different footwork. When you drop back for a three-step, for a five-step drop. Um, so you, he, that's something that he's still working on. I think the good news for him is Jason Garrett is a former quarterback himself. He's been the offensive coordinator down in Dallas for a long time. He understands how to help these young quarterbacks out. Think about the progression that Dak Prescott's gone through. I mean, that's you have to give credit to Jason Garrett for that. And then you also throw in, look, Freddie Kitchens is the tight ends coach. Freddie Kitchens is a former quarterback as well. He was the OC in Cleveland along with being the head coach. So there's a lot of good offensive minds around Daniel, and I think he's going to do a great job of absorbing that. Um, from a personality standpoint, Daniel reminds me so much of Eli. He he doesn't give you much by design. Eli did that by design. It's because, look, I need to be even-keeled. I need everybody to know that I'm going to be consistent, whether I've just thrown three interceptions or whether I've thrown three touchdowns. It's always about the next throw, and he gets that. So all of those things – um, and they, they turned into production. Look, let's face it. Daniel Jones, he had a pretty darn good rookie year. He set all kinds of Giants records um, for his production. through 24 touchdowns last year. All right, eight of them were to, to Darius Slayton, another rookie. So that relationship is blooming, it's blossoming. The fact that Darius Slayton was healthy all training camp, unlike last year, is, is, is a big bonus for them. Um, but Daniel Jones threw more touchdown passes than Kyler Murray, and he was the number one pick. So this kid's absolutely talented. Um, I think he throws a great deep ball. Uh, I think the big factor with him right now and what I've seen just in the scrimmage is he just needs to work on his pocket presence. Uh, I think, that, you know, look, we know his athletic ability, his ability to get out and run and scramble, but sometimes the best move is just maneuvering within the pocket to create a throwing lane to get the ball out and let your receivers do the work.
3: Let's head back to the lines. try to squeeze in one more caller before we wrap up shop. Dan is in the Poconos. Dan, what's happening?
0: Hey, good afternoon, Lance. Good afternoon,
2: Sean. What's up, Dan? Where are you on? Lake Wall and Paulpack?
0: What? Say that again, sir.
2: I said, Are you on Lake Wall and Paulpack in the Poconos? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, not too far. My kids went to school there. So that's, that's cool. Um, I just want, and it's a pleasure to talk to Super Bowl champion, Mr. Sean O'Hara. You know, it's not every day I talk to a Super Bowl champion. But um, just to tell you guys real quick a quick story about. John, you mentioned earlier, and this is what made me click into my head, um, about doing that for the fan and being the last guy out. Um, even though I'm not, a, I'm obviously not a little kid, and I, I'm happy to say um, I did see to the likes of uh, Earl of Pearl Monroe and Clyde Frazier. So as an, a suffering Knicks fan, at least I had that. I know I'm aging myself, but those are the good old days. But anyway.
3: The very good old well, days. Very, very yeah. old, old days. But go ahead. Yes. I
0: know. Well, we don't have much to hang on to, you know. So, anyway, um, Sean, I was—it uh, was the last uh, week, uh, sixteen, when uh, the Giants, uh, you know, went to the playoffs at that one game against Green Bay. But the last game at home, uh, we won against the Lions. We were playing the Lions week sixteen or seventeen, and it was halftime. And I'm by myself, and I'm just like—I I was behind the Giants bench. My season tickets are in one eleven. So the concession stand back there in the bar area, I was back over that way. And I just—I thought I was imagining There's David Deal just walking. He was, he was like power walking. He must have been doing like 80 miles an hour, this guy. And I stopped him dead in his chest, and I said, David Deal. And he looked at me, he goes, yes, yeah, that's me. And I said, oh, I'm a great fan, and blah, blah, blah. But just the fact that he's – and he said, wait, I said, I'm sitting right over there. And he took the time to stop and actually talk to me. It, you know, it. I'm something I'll never forget, and it's something so small in his life. But the little things that, like that, just stick with you. You know, he's a really great guy. That man, let me tell you. Yeah, so, he is.
2: Deal. Anyway. a good man from the south side of, of Chicago. Um, you know, we know. won't hold it. We won't hold it against him that he's a White Sox fan. But yeah, Deal's a good oh, dude, my. and uh, and he's a big fella too. He's hard to miss.
0: <laughs> I forgot. I didn't put that connection together. I know he's from Chicago too. He always mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know all about it.
3: <laughs> all right, Dan. We appreciate you sharing the That's story. Don, and thanks for calling right. in. Was that Don or Dan? Uh, I don't that, really. I, that, that was Don. Excuse me. I'm by, sorry. By I, the I, way, I'm, I'm mixing way. up my first names with the D. My, an, my apologies. Hopefully, in that interaction did not sweat Pippen on him poster. Him all, by the poster.
6: <laughs> he was definitely in a lather.
3: Deal yeah. <laughs> <laughs> D- doesn't have the Scotty Pippen poster though in his basement. He's got to work on that though, Sean.
2: Well, uh, he's probably got the Jordan poster. I think he. Well, We can't fault him for that then. Yeah.
3: If he's got at least one okay. of them, one of the two. Well, that is going to wrap things up for us here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We appreciate the callers, appreciate the tweeters. We'll continue to interact with you tomorrow, Wednesday's edition, starting up at noon Eastern as well. Sean, this was a blast. Great to go back and forth with you. Look forward to doing it again.
2: Thanks, Lance. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate it. Let's hope this wasn't the last dance.
3: Ah, look at you. A very nice pun utilized in terms of tying in the Bulls and the Giants. Appreciate everybody once again for tuning in. For Sean O'Hara, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.